welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Oh, let me uh, let me read that passage of scripture. A little bit of that passage from Matthew chapter three to you again. Uh, this you've heard it already read to you in the ESV version. This is the BSV version, the Ben Sharp version. All right, you ready? But when old John saw the sanctimonious elites coming to get baptized, he said to them, "You low down bunch of snakes." Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You need to quit talking about God and start living like He's really changed your life. And don't even begin to say to yourselves, don't you know who I am? Abraham is my daddy. Well, let me tell you what. God is able to turn rocks into children of Abraham. Right this minute, God's judgment is coming on Israel. And if you don't change your ways, He's going to cut you down and throw you into hell. Well, don't that just put the fa-la-la right in your heart? (laughs) Makes you feel all kind of warm and fuzzy and cozy like a a mug of eggnog sitting in front of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. No, it really doesn't, not one bit. It really seems strange that every Advent season we hear about John the Baptizer, uh, this, this fiery preacher with his radical paleo diet. It's just so incongruous with the sentimentality that typifies this season. And yet the church wisely focuses on the biblical accounts of John the baptizer because his role, his role is to prepare people to encounter and receive Jesus Christ. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Matthew 3, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare of the, way, the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You know, we need to be prepared. I was, um, I was always that kid in grade school. I don't know if you had one of these in your class. Back in the day, the teacher would often have to go to the office sometimes to get a, okay, let me tell you about ancient technology. Are you ready, children? All right, this is, this is, uh, this is like watching ancient aliens. You know, where did this technology come from? Uh, it was called a mimeograph machine. Does anybody even know what I'm talking about? And you had this round cylinder with a stencil and ink, and the, and the ink smelled, smelled good. Yeah, I know, because we didn't realize it, but it was making us high. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> that's what, keep those grade school kids compliant. But the teacher would go off and make copies, and we would be there in the room. She would say, as she would go out the door, I'm going to the office for just a minute. Don't get out of your seat. Well, of course, almost everybody got out of their seat, but somehow I was the only one still out of the seat when the teacher, you know, everyone else was prepared for her return. And there I was, you know, with my mouth hanging open, uh, far away from where I was supposed to be in that moment. You know, that's what Advent is really about. It's so we don't have that experience on a cosmic scale. Advent's central purpose is to remind us that we are not to meet the Lord in an unprepared state when He returns in glory. And there are things that we need to attend to in order to be ready to receive Christ as He enters our lives 
and at the end of the age. We need to be prepared. And I think that this morning, what the Bible we just heard, what the Bible passage we just read out of Matthew's Gospel says about the context of John's ministry and the methodology of his ministry and the content of his preaching, these things, context, methodology, and content provide us with a template a model for for preparation in our lives so that we might be ready to receive King Jesus when He comes again. And so let's just take a look real quick at that context because the time and place, the time and place of John's preaching were central to preparing people to encounter Jesus Christ. This is what it says, again, at the beginning of that reading in Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching In the wilderness of Judea, the word of the Lord came to John. He came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. It had been, at this time, hundreds of years, maybe 400 years since a prophet had arisen in Israel, since God's voice had come through the prophets in Israel. And like rain after a long drought, John the baptizer shows up in the desert after hearing from God. He comes at a particular time, and place and his in history. John ministered, he ministered, it tells us, from the desert. Now, by all accounts, he had been living in the desert most of his adult life. The desert, the wilderness of Judea, I've actually been there, is a rocky, barren, hot environment with very little, uh, very little vegetation. Among its most common inhabitants are vipers and scorpions, not the, not the kind of neighbors you t- particularly want. But we need to realize, though, that for John to come in the desert has significance for God's people Israel particularly and for us as well because for the people of Israel, the desert had been the location, ready? The desert had been the location of their most intimate encounter with God as they wandered in the wilderness after their time in Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness, in the desert for 40 years. God led them and spoke the Torah, His Word to them. He revealed Himself to them in the desert. And the desert was the location in which many prophets encountered God and received His words. You may remember in 1 Kings chapter 19 how the prophet Elijah is in the desert and he hears the voice of God and it is that still, small voice of God in the desert where he encounters God. And John, through his description here, he was clothed in camel's hair, wearing a leather belt. He is presented to us as a prophet in the very mold of Elijah. The desert is important because it is where we listen. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes this. He says the Hebrew word midbar, which means wilderness or desert, has the same root as the word dabar, meaning word. It has the same letters as mudabar, meaning speaking. It is, so here, hear this, it is in the wilderness that the Israelites hear revelation, the word or speaking of God. So midbar and dabar, wilderness and speech, speaking, have the same Hebrew word as at its root. These are inseparably linked. John 
heard God in the desert, and he proclaimed what he heard to the people. Now, I want to suggest this morning that God still speaks to us. He still speaks to his people in the desert. The desert lends itself to listening to God. It is a silent and empty place. It is an environment where we are especially sensitive to hear God. So where is your desert? It is where you encounter the emptiness. Here's where your desert is. It's where you encounter the emptiness, where you are especially sensitive to God. And here's the thing. We might not come, we might not go to the desert, but God will bring the desert to us to make us sensitive to Him. The desert lends itself to listening to God. It's the place in life where the things that we are depending upon, listen, for stability and security, all the things we take for granted for stability and normalcy and security in life are taken away and we are left with a sense of emptiness and vulnerability. So there is the desert of uncertainty. There's times of transition. Transition can be a desert place. It could be the birth of a baby or the change of careers or children moving away from home. You think you want it to happen, but when it does, it's not so much fun. Graduating from school. It could be losing a job. You see, it's in our uncertainty. In our uncertainty, we are sensitive to God's voice because in that moment, we recognize that we are not sufficient in ourselves. Our wisdom is not enough. Our strategies are not enough. God looks at your spreadsheet that you have made for your life and He laughs at it. There's the desert of pain. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone. It can be physical pain. Um, have uh, family members right now in severe physical pain in my extended family, and, um, and it, it brings you up short and makes you aware of your limitations and makes you think about last things. There's emotional pain. Uh, there is relational pain. And even the shared pain of a loved one, someone in your life who is going through pain, in those moments of pain, we are vulnerable and we can be made sensitive to hear God's voice. There's the desert of meaninglessness. And I think that if, if I look around today, one of the things that's happening, uh, particularly among uh, males of European descent in the United States of America right now, the life expectancy of, of that part of the population has been decreasing for the last four years. In a Western industrialized modern country, our life expectancy for people like me is going down. Why is it going down? It is mainly going down because of what is called death, death by despair. Addiction to alcohol, opioids, suicide, loneliness. People who are lonely just don't live as long. Death by despair. It is a desert of meaninglessness. We've looked to our own resources 
We thought we were going to fulfill ourselves in our secular utopia, and it's leading to death. And maybe people will begin to become sensitive and be prepared to hear from God in that desert. There's the desert of failure. Uh, if you know, if you've, I know people who have just kind of lead, led a charmed life. Do you know anybody like that? I kind of like. I'm thinking, bless your heart. You know, bless your heart. Uh, you 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 might think you're you are all that and a bag of chips. Uh, there's a you know there within certain segments of the church there are uh, speaking spe- uh, con- con- conventions and. Um, Conferences, especially with church planters. I'm a church planter. I'm a pastor that has planted churches. There's church planters conferences. And a lot of times these are guys in their 20s who've never failed at anything. And they just got lucky, you know, and God blessed them. And, uh, and they, their church blew up and they, you know, blew up in a good way. I've blown up churches in bad ways. <laughs> I'm talking about blowing up in a good way that they have grown, uh, to just, you know, thousands of people, and, and some of those people think they did it. They've never experienced failure, but failure, times of failure, when plans and hopes and dreams come crashing down and leave us with ruined expectations and perhaps even a sense of worthlessness, God takes us by our shoulders and looks at us and says, listen to me in your desert. Here is the amazing thing, though. That word for desert, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, but that word for desert also contains the same root as the Hebrew word debir, which means, are you ready? This is so cool. I didn't know this till I studied. It means the holy of holies. It's that innermost place within the temple where the very presence of Israel's God came and rested on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant so that the temple was filled with the glory of God and people couldn't even go into that room. God's presence was so intense in that moment, the innermost part of that temple. The desert is a place where you and I can encounter the very presence of God. It is the place where you feel the driest in the place in your Christian life where you feel the driest and the emptiest can become the holy of holies. It can be a holy place. And God can use that. So is God speaking to you in your desert this morning? He is preparing you to encounter Christ in a fresh way. There's also the method of John's message, and it's it's important in preparing us to encounter Jesus Christ, his methodology. You know, how John presents, how John presents the word is as important as the word he presents. Going back to the ESV version here, Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 and following. But when he saw, John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John presents in his methodology, he presents a stark contrast, salvation or judgment. There's no middle ground. There are no shades of gray. His preaching is like the wilderness under the blaring afternoon sun, just blinding white light juxtaposed against pitch dark 
shadows, blinding white sunlight, pitch dark shadows, just a choice between heaven and eternal fire. He doesn't coddle his listeners. His methodology does not tickle their ears with flattery and comforting words. For crying out loud, he calls them a bunch of snakes. And at times, a brush fire in the desert would drive the vipers out in terror, and John's preaching had just that effect. It drove people to flee from the coming wrath. Now, he might not have had the best preaching skill or people skills, but he had an effective methodology, and it's still effective today. One of my favorite preachers from the days of American of the American pioneers was a guy named Peter Cartwright. Have you ever heard of Peter Cartwright? He was a backwoods, uh, rough and ready, circuit-riding preacher of the early 19th century, and he calls to my mind that spirit of John the Baptizer. In 1818, Cartwright had been invited to preach at a local church in Nashville, Tennessee, when General Andrew Jackson showed up unexpectedly in the congregation. And here is the account of that taken from Cartwright's own autobiography. Listen to what he writes. Monday evening came. The church was filled to overflowing. Every seat was crowded, and many had to stand. After singing in prayer, I read my text. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? After reading my text, I paused, and at that moment, I saw General Jackson. Okay, refresher, he's the guy on your $20 bill, all right? General Jackson, walking up the aisle, he came to the middle post and very gracefully leaned against it and stood as there were no vacant seats. Just then, I felt someone pull my coat in the stand, and turning my head, my fastidious preacher, whispering a little loud, said, General Jackson has come in. General Jackson has come in. The host pastor feared that Cartwright would offend Jackson by his uncompromising preaching, and the host pastor was not disappointed. (laughs) Cartwright continues in his autobiography, "I, I felt a flash of indignation run all over me like an electric shock. And facing about to my congregation and purposely speaking out audibly, I said, who is General Jackson? If he don't get his soul converted, God will damn him as quick as he would any stealing scoundrel. Way to win friends. Well, the preacher, he's right, he writes, the preacher tucked his head down and squatted low and would no doubt have been thankful for a leave of absence. When the congregation was dismissed, my city-stationed preacher stepped up to me and very sternly said to me, you are the strangest man I have ever seen. And General Jackson will chastise you for your insolence before you leave the city. General Jackson, again, this is still Cartwright, was staying at one of the Nashville hotels. Next morning, I passed by the hotel and I met the general on the pavement. And before I approached him by several steps, he smiled and reached out his hand and said, Mr. Cartwright, you are a man after my own heart. I am very much surprised that Mr. Mack, the preacher, the host preacher, I am very much surprised at Mr. Mack to think he would suppose that I would be offended at you. No, sir. I told him that I highly approved of your independence that a minister of Jesus Christ ought to love everybody and fear no mortal man. 
If I had a few thousand such independent, fearless officers as you were and a well-drilled army, I could take old England. <laughs> Beloved, we seem to be living in, a, in the midst of a very delicate, fragile, effete, easily offended generation. But if there is a fire sweeping through a building, you do not dilute the message that you need to get out now or you are going to die just because you're afraid you might hurt somebody's feelings. There is still a time for this kind of preaching. John's simple, clear message says, this is what's wrong, these are the consequences, and this is what you can do about it. And we still need that clarity that method today. And then there's the content of John's preaching. The content of John's preaching is essential to preparing us to encounter Jesus Christ. John goes from the desert to the inhabited areas around the Jordan area, uh, Jordan River, with the message that he has received. It is a baptism of repentance. And this is just so important. And I think it is lost. Uh, Again, I think we... We want to ameliorate. We want to to tone down the clarity of the gospel sometimes because we're afraid that somebody's precious feelings might get hurt. But here's the truth that John tells us is that repentance, repentance must come before salvation. There's no salvation without first repentance. And it must be personal for each one of us. We cannot count on what our fathers and mothers did before us to guarantee our salvation. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Uh, My version of that statement, and you may have heard me say it, is this. Just because your cat has kittens in the oven doesn't make them biscuits. It's hard. I don't, that's so easy to understand. I don't know why it just kind of goes over everybody's head. In other words, it is possible to have grown up in church, to have been born in church and been in church all your life without having a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of us have merely been around religion long enough to inoculate ourselves from catching the real thing. The dear, good Bishop Rao. Church of England in the late 1900s, or late 1800s, excuse me, good Bishop Ryle Ryle said this about John's preaching on this point. This is just the teaching that we all need. We are naturally dead. This is our state before God's saving grace transforms us. This is the natural state of man. We are naturally dead and blind and asleep in spiritual things. We are ready to content ourselves with a mere formal religion, to content ourselves with a mere formal religion. It can happen anywhere. I mean, you know, one of the great things I love about Christchurch is, I mean, we have all this, all these trappings. We got, we got robes, we got symbols, we got colors, we, we bow, we kneel, we do all this stuff. And, but the great thing about it though is that those are just vehicles for the Holy Spirit to use to help us encounter Christ. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't do it, if He's not in it, it's mere formal religion. 
And it can happen here. It can happen in a Pentecostal church. And it can happen here. It's just a lot prettier when it happens here. We are ready to content ourselves with a mere formal religion and to flatter ourselves that if we go to church, we shall be saved. We need to be told that except, that except we repent and are converted, we shall all perish. Every one of us needs that moment of repentance. And repentance is revealed in actions, brothers and sisters, a changed life. That's what John is saying. He says bear, it's revealed, not just in, a, in my heart, but it must be Revealed in my actions, bear fruit, John preaches, in keeping, consistent with, in keeping with repentance. So merely feeling sorry is not repentance. That may be the beginning of contrition, but it is not repentance. Talking about it is not repentance. In fact, talking about our sin can be merely a form of exhibitionism, of cathartic exhibitionism, where I never really intend to change at all but I'm going to go on a talk show and tell you how bad I am. That's not repentance. A changed direction in life, a changed direction in life, reveals genuine repentance. While we may not see the actual grace of repentance at work in a person's spirit, we will see the outworking of that grace in their lives. And I need to have that in my life. Finally, John's message pointed to Jesus Christ. After me comes one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's pointing to Jesus Christ. Though he's presented, though presented in terms of apocalyptic judgment, John's message is a preparation for, are you ready, for good news because it does these things that John is preaching and enacting prepare us to encounter Jesus Christ and to receive Him. We have nothing to say as a church, at Christ church. I have nothing to say as a preacher that does not ultimately lead people to Jesus Christ. Preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, John closes his message with this statement, Matthew 3.12, his winnowing fork, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John is indicating the coming of Jesus is a divisive and decisive moment. We can reject him and be like the chaff sorted out from the threshing floor or we can receive him and be like the wheat that is gathered up and cherished and brought into the storehouse. The scriptures invite us this morning to experience genuine repentance. John's message, the message of repentance, offers us the clear choice between heaven and hell, judgment and salvation. That's just the way John preaches, and it may sound, sound harsh to our modern ears but it is the true precursor to salvation. John's message of judgment and repentance and justice prepares us for the wonderful grace of God, the love of God, and shows us our desperate need for the grace and love of God that will be made manifest in the very person of Jesus Christ who calls us to receive Him. You know, we get to model that process 
every Sunday morning as we come to the Lord's table. We come, first of all, in just a moment, we will hit our knees on the hard floor of this church, and through confession and repentance, we will begin that process. And after we've confessed our sins, we will pass the peace, which is a moment not just to say, Howdy, how are you doing? Good morning. It is a moment to say, I am reconciled to you because of Christ's finished work on the cross. And if I have wronged you, I repent and I want to be reconciled. This is my, my moment of initiating that reconciliation. Or, or you may have wronged me and I want, to, I want you to know that I want to be reconciled with you. And this moment of passing the peace is my time to say, I am open to your act of reconciliation in Christ. So we go from repentance before God to reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. This is the process. And then what happens? Well, then we get, we are prepared to receive Jesus Christ as he comes to us under the signs of bread and wine as his real presence shows up for us in groceries. Jesus is coming soon. Repent and prepare. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christ Church, visit us at ChristChurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 